grace, mercy and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text is today's Gospel and I read the first part of verse 20. And they all ate and were satisfied. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Dear sisters and brothers in Christ, our text begins literally, Now when Jesus heard, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place privately. It could be that he already knew about the execution of John the Baptizer, which is what Matthew tells us about immediately before our text. But it could be simply that he had heard what, that Herod had taken notice of him. Herod had identified Jesus as John risen from the dead because of the many miracles Jesus was doing. The Lord withdrew to a desolate place privately with his disciples because it wasn't the right time for him to come under Herod's spotlight. At the right time, he would go to Jerusalem to be arrested, crucified, and on the third day be raised. Yet when the crowds heard that Jesus was leaving by boat, they followed around the lake on foot. So when he came to shore, there was a large crowd waiting to greet him. If you'd been in that situation you might have wanted to keep going in the boat. Our Lord didn't try to shake off the crowds, though. He had compassion on them, and that's the first point in today's sermon. Mention of his compassion is significant. The Gospels tell us little about Jesus' emotions. Matthew's Gospel tells us how the Lord marveled at the faith of a centurion who came to him asking him to heal his servant by merely giving the word of command. It tells us also how at Gethsemane, when Jesus took with him Peter, James and John for prayer, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Apart from these two emotions, there's one that gets a mention on four different occasions in this gospel. Yes, it's his compassion for people in their need. Seeing the great crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. There at the lake, he once again demonstrated the compassionate nature of God. To Moses on Mount Sinai, centuries before, God had declared his compassion. Moses wanted proof that the Lord would go with his people Israel to the promised land. And the reason for that is Israel's future was in jeopardy because they'd made and worshipped a golden calf during the 40 days that Moses was with the Lord on the mountain. The Lord had threatened to destroy them all except for Moses. He said, I'll make of you and your family a nation. When Moses interceded for the people, the Lord had a change of heart. He confirmed it by showing his glory to Moses on the mountain and by declaring his compassion. And you know, Moses only saw a little of his glory. He saw the Lord from behind while Moses was there in a cleft in the rock. But that was enough to scare the people of Israel when Moses came down from the mountain with his face shining. He had to put a veil over it every time he came out to, the, to speak to the people. 
But there on the, on the mountain, the Lord, together with his glory, spoke these words, the Lord, the Lord, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, keeping steadfast love to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. There were turbulent times ahead for the people of Israel because of their repeated disobedience and lack of faith. A journey that should have taken a few months ended up being 40 years. Yet the Lord remained true to his promise to go with his people. During that 40-year journey, he even provided the people with manna every morning. And we're told that about two occasions on which he provided vast amounts of quail for the people to eat. Out of compassion, Jesus healed those who were sick. So Mark, in his account, adds that he began to teach them many things. Before long, it was evening, and the disciples showed that they were concerned about the people's well-being. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to, <clears throat> came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Our Lord had a better idea. The crowds should be fed there and then. He would also teach his disciples, and this is the second point of our sermon, that he possessed the creative power of God. He said, they need not go away, you give them something to eat. With only five loaves of bread and two fish, the task was an impossible one. St. Matthew says that those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children, so the total number could have been 10,000 plus. That was no problem for Jesus, though. The God of Israel would again provide food for his people in the wilderness. So Jesus had the crowds lie down on the grass as at a banquet. In those days, people would recline for an important meal. Good for digestion, too, I believe. If you wondered how, at a meal in the home of a Pharisee, a woman could wet Jesus' feet with her tears while standing behind him, then wipe his feet with her hair, kiss them and anoint them with ointment. It was because Jesus was reclining at table. His feet would have been level with the rest of his body. Thanks to his creative power, his disciples were able to give the people a sumptuous banquet. Jesus looked up to heaven and addressed spirit-filled words to his father, words of blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to give to the crowd. And he did the same with the fish, as much as they wanted. There was so much food that was left over that it filled 12 baskets. By multiplying bread and fish, Jesus did what only God can do. It was like that also at the creation of the world. God spoke and it was done. The Father created all things through his Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything was very good until the tempter made his way into the Garden of Eden and the first human beings listened to him rather than to God. Along with sin came a breakdown of man's good relationship to God. Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden. The world was subjected to suffering and death. Today's orthodoxy is that every living thing has evolved. Any scientist who believes that God created by direct command <coughs> is smeared 
<coughs> smeared as unscientific and a danger to society. <coughs> well, who is being unscientific when there's not one fossil of a transitional or in-between creature? <coughs> For example, if the forelimb of a reptile turned into the wing of a bird, why aren't there fossils that show the stages of change? Why aren't there fossils of what is part limb, part wing, or part scale, part feather, the one gradually giving way to the other? Dr. Sylvia Baker became a creationist during her university biology lectures given by a leading, ironically, by a leading British evolutionist. In her booklet, Bone of Contention, she discusses the matter of fossil links. Her booklet contains a photo of one of the three Archaeopteryx fossils, if that's how you pronounce it. The three were discovered in the same site in Germany. The Archaeopteryx has been claimed to be an intermediate form between reptiles and birds. Even if we suppose that the skeleton is definitely that of a reptile, not a bird, she has written, what do we make of the fact that it has got such perfectly formed feathers? You can look at this photo of the fossil and you can see beautiful tail feathers. She wrote, The feathers of Archaeopteryx are nothing like frayed scales. They're fully developed, complex feathers. Well, belief in evolution allows us to be our own gods and live as we please, to a certain extent anyway. But where does that get us? It leaves us in the grip of fear, fear of climate change, of the destruction of the world, of sickness and of death. Thanks to God's compassion and to our Lord Jesus, who bearing our sins suffered in our place on a cross and rose again to free us from our sins, we can have sure hope in God's promises. We know that when our Lord Jesus comes in glory at the end of the age, the creation itself will be set free from, the, from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, as you would have heard, was it two or three Sundays ago, in the reading from Romans. In other words, along with God's children being made glorious like Christ, the whole creation will be made new as well. God's creation that is now in bondage to corruption yet shows evidence of the Creator. That seeds sprout and grow, producing many more seeds that be, can be harvested and milled and made into bread. That fish and all living creatures multiply. These are miracles of God's creation that we see around us all the time. By his miracle of instantly providing an abundance of bread and fish, our Lord Jesus points to the new creation and the feast that belongs to it. As he says earlier in this gospel, Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. <coughs> Thirdly, he, then, he prepares a feast for us. <coughs> he invites us all to what the book of Revelation calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb because like a lamb he laid down his life for us, for sinners, so that we who are dearly loved by him might have entry to that eternal feast. And isn't the supper our Lord established on the night of his betrayal the beginning of that marriage supper? Doesn't the feast the Lord gave in the wilderness point to it? 
It was while Jesus and the twelve reclined at table for a Passover meal that as in the wilderness, our Lord took bread, gave a blessing, broke it and gave it to the disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body. And he also took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant or testament which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The church observes that life-giving supper of the Lord's body and blood by his command until he comes in glory. The catacombs of Rome where Christians were buried before the Christian faith became legal in the Roman Empire contain many paintings, one of them you can see on the screen of a fish and five loaves of bread in a basket. The feeding of the 5,000 was a reminder for those early Christians of both the Lord's Supper and the eternal feast in heaven, the paradise to come. No one will hunger or thirst there. Blessed indeed are the guests of honour, the bride of the Lord Jesus, who have been invited to his marriage banquet. Amen. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.